passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel chapter 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, if you've been reading ahead uh, in 2 Samuel, we've been working our way through this book. If you've been uh, reading ahead in 2 Samuel, you'll notice that this is a, a, a very interesting, unique text, um, a challenge to, to work through. might be wondering what exactly, how exactly does this text speak to us in our faith today? And uh, thank God uh, that He has given us... Um, providentially, he's, he's actually made it very easy for us to know exactly what this text is about uh, through repetition. Um, twice in this uh, section here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we see God tell us the, the purpose, the focus of this passage. So 2 Samuel chapter 8 verse 6 and verse 14 both end with this phrase, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So don't miss the forest for the trees as we're looking at this passage this morning. The focus here is not so much on military victories, but it's instead on God's commitment to David. Maybe a, a better way of saying that is it's about God's commitment to his covenant king. And this is actually something that we've seen throughout 2 Samuel as we've been working our way through this book. It's what we saw in 1 Samuel as well. God is utterly and completely committed to David. And that's true when David is a paragon of faith, where he's this beautiful example of, of what we should aspire to of our faith in the Lord. But it's also true in the moments where David is, is stuck in the mire of unbelief. And we're we're looking at these stories, and we're looking at David's sin, and we're like, how could you do that? And the overarching message of 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel is that God is utterly committed to David, to his covenant king. And that commitment to David is a part of a broader commitment from the Lord, not just to one individual person, but to his people as a whole. Throughout our time in 2 Samuel, as well as in 1 Samuel, we've seen this message overarching throughout the book. It's this, we need a king to point us to the true king of glory, God himself. So God's plan for a king in his economy God's plan is a king is there for the good of his people, is the, for the good of God's people, that the king is given to God's people to point God's people to the Lord. And that's actually something that David grasped. A couple weeks ago, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we saw David notice this, and David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. So in God's economy, the way God sets things up, kingship is for the sake of God's people. I don't know if anyone watched the coronation yesterday, but one of the things, I didn't, just to be clear, I need to, I was reading about the coronation. One of the things that uh, the new king of England said 
um, he actually quoted from Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And he said that he committed to not be served, but to serve. And while there's a number of, of problems with the English kingship, that gets at the heart of what God's purpose for a king is. A king does not exist for himself in God's plan, the way God has set things up. Instead, the king exists for the good of God's people. God gives his people a king to lead his people to him, to point them to him. That's the purpose of King David, and that is the purpose of all of the kings, or at least it's supposed to be, all of the kings that follow him, and of course culminating with the true king, Jesus, the king forever. God is at work in the king to point people to himself. And that's why God is utterly committed to David, is so that he can show his utter commitments to his people. And this morning's passage doesn't just talk about that commitment, it also talks about the spread of God's kingdom on earth. And we're soon going to see that this chapter actually focuses on God's kingdom expanding at every point of the compass. There's four stories of this military advancement, and it, it, it couldn't be clearer. Every single story focuses on a different point of the compass, west, east, north, south. That The message is very clear, that God is spreading his kingdom, and he's spreading his kingdom through his chosen king. So let's go ahead and consider the two parts of this morning's text. We're going to look first at God's, the spread of God's kingdom in verses 1 through 14, and then finally, what type of kingdom this is in verses 15 through 18. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump into this passage. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your holy word. We ask that you would help us to understand this text. Help us to understand how you desire to use it for the transformation of your church this morning. Spirit, we ask that you would come and teach us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I mentioned that the heart of this text is this repeated phrase over and over here of the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. No matter where David turned, he was met with victory. And over the past two weeks, as we've been working through 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that God has made some incredible, astonishing claims or promises to David, and by extension, those promises are to the people of God, to Israel. And one of these promises concerns peace from the enemies that surround them. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 says this, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So we should have that text in mind when we open up 2 Samuel chapter 8 and we read this in verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Metheg Amma out of the hand of the Philistines. So don't miss those first two words here in verse 1, after this. 2 Samuel chapter 8 is not so subtly saying, God has promised rest for his people, and here it is. 2 Samuel chapter 8, in the context of the book of 2 Samuel, is about the trustworthiness of God's character. 
God makes promises, God keeps promises. End of story. That's just the way God works. It's who he is. But 2 Samuel chapter 8 doesn't just tell us about rest. It also tells us about expanse. Verses 1 through 14 contain four stories of the expanse of God's kingdom, focusing, as I said, on each direction of the compass. The first one here in verse 1 focuses on the spread of God's kingdom to the west, to the land of the Philistines. Let's go ahead and throw that map up up here. We have this picture of what Israel looked like and, and their surrounding nations here. Uh, Israel is located in the blue area. That's the territory of Israel. If you see that teal, is that teal? One of those colors here? I, I'm really bad with colors. I, I said it was green and then someone told me it's not green. Uh, Philistia is located there on the west in that little blurb of teal there, and that is where we are focusing here. We'll look at this map over and over over the course of our time together, and we'll see what exactly is being talked about here. So here we're seeing this focus on the land of the Philistines. We've seen the Philistines throughout First and Second Samuel. Uh, every time we see the, the Philistines in this book, they serve kind of as this thermometer for Israel's spiritual health. So if the, if the Philistines are, um, if they're ruling and reigning and they're oppressing Israel, it's, it's because uh, the spiritual state of Israel is not good. They've turned away from the Lord. Uh, but when they place God first, then they actually rule over the Philistines. And so that serves as the context of this battle, this defeat of the Philistines. This is the greatest degree of the Philistine, uh, uh, well, we see them oppressed by the Israelites here. In fact, we don't see the Philistines really ever pose a threat to the people of Israel ever again, at least for a couple hundred years. The Philistines are subdued. In other words, David effectively rules over the territory of the Philistines. He may allow some form of limited autonomy here, but it's clear that the Philistines have to pay tribute to David, and that's what the text means or has in mind when it says that David took Metheg Amma. Metheg Amma was probably some ancient idiom that referred or means something like the heart of the motherland. And it's very clear that, that David, by taking Metheg Amma, the heart of the motherland, he's exerted his control over all of Philistia. 1 Chronicles chapter 18 is a parallel passage to this chapter and tells us that David actually captures Gath. Gath is the capital city of the Philistines. So Israel, they, they exert their control, they extend their control to the west over the Philistines. The next story tells us about their uh, kingdom advancement in the east over the Moabites. Take a look at verse 2. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, marking, or making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line he spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tributes. Again, this, this verse is, is pretty shocking to us. At some point, the Israelites defeat the army of Moab. Let's go ahead and throw that map up again. Here we see the Moabites. They're located in one of these red areas, uh, the, the, the red one just to the south there, or to the east of, of the Red Sea. Um, so this is kind of southeast of Israel here is where we are focusing and so when David defeats the Moabites, he actually makes them line up in three columns at random, and he kills two of the columns, and he spares the third. And we might say, well, that's grotesque. How on earth, or what are we supposed to do with this information? And, and admittedly, it sounds harsh to our modern-day ears, and, and yet this would have been a form of mercy 
in the ancient world. David doesn't kill everyone. He doesn't wipe the Moabites from existence. Instead, he allows a third of them to be spared and return to their home. The Moabites are not completely destroyed, but again, don't miss the, the forest for the trees. Just like the Philistines in the west, now we have the Moabites in the east, and they, they effectively fall over or under the rule of David. And what was implied in verse 1 about David ruling over the Philistines is made very explicit here when we're talking about the Moabites. They become his servants, and they provide tribute to him. So now we see by the end of verse 2 that there's this steady flow of wealth from these pagan nations to God's people, to Israel. Third story is the longest. The third story starts in verse 3, and it's about the expanse of the kingdom in the north. It starts this way. David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. So let's go ahead and pause here. Let's put this map up once again. To the north of Israel, there were a group of people called the Arameans. All right. Now you can see on this map, there is to the north of Israel, right there next to the yellow uh, little slice of land, that yellow slice of land is the Phoenicians. Uh, the, the, the large area there is Aram. And the, there were a number of different tribes of Arameans that they, there was no centralized uh, source of, of leadership for these various tribes. And so there were a number of different city-states that were ruled over by different kings. And one of these city-states was uh, this, this city-state of Zobah. Now, we don't know exactly where Zobah was located. That map, just to, to be clear, does not show us all of Zobah. It doesn't show us all of where this man Hadad-Ezer controlled, but it was located somewhere in there to the north of Israel. One of these cities, city states, as I mentioned, is Zobah, uh, Hadad-Ezer, apparently one of the more uh, powerful rulers of the Arameans uh, because he decides he's going to extend his rulership or his, his authority all the way even further north to the, the river Euphrates. And so what David does is he actually intervenes in this power play. And, and he goes and he, he confronts Hadad-Ezer and he actually destroys Hadad-Ezer's army. And David captures several thousand of his chariot horses, and he hamstrings the vast majority of them. And that makes them unsuitable for warfare, but they could probably still be used uh, for some sort of agricultural means. And the reason why David does this is because uh, he's, he's being obedient to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells us God's rules for kings over his people, and it says this, the king must not acquire many horses for himself. And we see in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 17 the reason why. In the ancient world, chariots and horses were the highest form of military technology. They were, they were something that you could not compete with if you did not have them. And God says, I don't want you to accumulate many horses, many chariots, and the reason why is pretty clear. God doesn't want his people to trust in military strength or technology, but he wants them to trust in the Lord alone. 
And again, that's what we see from the repetition here in 2 Samuel chapter 8, right? It's the Lord who brings David victory. And David understands that. He gets that this, is, this victory that he's experiencing is from God, and, and he, he acts accordingly. And so he hamstrings the vast majority of these horses. Now, if you're like me, you may be wondering, why exactly is David so far away from Israel? I, I measured this out this past week. Uh, the nearest point of the Euphrates River to Jerusalem is about 325 miles. To put that in perspective, that's about roughly the distance between Spencer and Kansas City, all right? So why is David 325 miles away from home? It makes sense that he's battling the Philistines. The Philistines, Gath to Jerusalem, only 20, 25 miles. Between Jerusalem and the Moabites, only 30 to 40 miles. So again, that makes sense why David is, is involved in battles there. But why is David all the way up near the Euphrates, especially if they don't really have horses and they have to travel on foot? What's going on here? Well, a possible answer is found when we consider, again, the, the, uh, the promises that God has made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and how those connect to the promises God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. The promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 are really just fleshing out the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15. So when, David, when God promises David and Israel a land of rest, it's actually a part of this promise that God has already made to Abraham centuries earlier. Genesis chapter 15 says this, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So centuries before David, God makes a promise to Abraham, and that promise includes the land all the way up to the Euphrates. And now we see David fighting and winning Hadad-Ezer on the banks of the Euphrates. And it's possible that David, and I just want to say, we've seen over and over that David really knows his Bible, that David understands what God has said, what God has promised in the past. So it's possible that David actually sees this as an opportunity to fulfill God's promise to his people. And even if that's not David's reasoning, even if David didn't have that in mind when he goes to battle and there's some other reason, at the same time, what we see from the narration of 2 Samuel is that even if David didn't have that in mind, 2 Samuel does. That this is what God is doing through David at this moment. God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham through David. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. The battle isn't quite over, so let's pick up in verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took very much bronze. 
So Hadad-Ezer, he seeks help from other Aramean tribes, the Syrians. They're located in this same area, maybe a little bit further north than where Zobah is located. And the Syrians, they meet the same end. They fall to David as well. David is so successful in this northern campaign, he actually establishes garrisons of troops throughout these foreign nations as a way to maintain his control over this huge swath of land. And by the end of this section, we see that wealth is flowing to Israel from the west, from the east, and now from the north. And there's this large stockpile of wealth that begins. Now, significantly, David's reach will grow even further to the north. Take a look at verse 9. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadad-Ezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had often been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. Can we throw that map up one more time? I forgot to include it in this section. Another one of these um, areas, if you look here uh, on the map, this, this second Teal location is another area, the, the land of Hamath. And, and Hamath was also a city, um, a city-state that was controlled by or ruled by this man named Toy. Toy had been at war with Hamath or with Hadath Ezer, Hadad Ezer, and he's thrilled with David's victory over Hadad Ezer. And so basically what he does is he sends a thank you present. And he says, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, so thank you. I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. He sends a royal entourage led by his son, Joram. In essence, Toy is expressing gratitude to David, and he actually willingly submits his kingdom to David's kingdom. He becomes an ally of David, even though that means he is also subservient to David. And I, th I think that the most interesting part of this section, these verses here, is found in the name of Toy's son. We see that his son's name is Joram. And it's unlikely that his name was Joram, at least at first. First Chronicles chapter 18, again, this parallel passage, parallel chapter to this chapter, tells us that Toy's son was named Hadaram, or translated, that means the god Hadad is exalted. Hadad was the name of the chief god of these tribes in that area, similar to what we know as Baal. It was just a different name for Baal. Notice that the king of Zobah, his name is Hadad-Ezer, which means Hadad, the god Hadad, is my help. And Hadad was of no help against the Lord. So Toy comes to David, but doesn't just come to David saying, hey, I want a political alliance. I don't, want, I don't want war. I want peace with you. He also changes his son's name. His son was named Hadaram, which means Hadad is exalted. And he changes his son's name from Hadaram to Joram, which means Yahweh is exalted. So something's happening here. This is more than just a, a political alliance between David and Toy, but what we're actually seeing is a form of conversion. That the men of Hamath, the city of Hamath, they actually convert to following the true God, to following Yahweh because of God's king, David. 
Do you see what's happening to this point? I just want to a pause and, and, and take a step back from the text and, and look at this. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God under David, this king, God's king, it's expanding. And it will not be stopped. You cannot stop the expansion of God's kingdom. If you want to war against it, if you want to rebel against it, you will fail. That's what 2 Samuel chapter 8 makes very clear. But it doesn't mean that if you find yourself outside the kingdom of God, outside the people of God, that there is no hope for you. If you find yourself a pagan kingdom like this man, Toy and Hamath, we can see there's assurance for those who find themselves outside the kingdom of God that if you come to God's king seeking peace, if you swear allegiance to God's king, to the true God, then he will readily accept you into his kingdom and among his people. Not really hard to make a transition to today, is it? Jesus, the Lord's true king, tells us that his kingdom is not of this world in John chapter 18. Unlike in David's day, the kingdom of God does not spread through war. It does not spread through the conquering sword. Today, the kingdom of God spreads through the power of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yet, just like in David's day, there are only two responses two possible responses to the kingdom of God. You can war against it or you can readily and gladly submit to God's king, to King Jesus, this king who gladly gave himself up for his enemies so that they might not just be a part of his kingdom, but a part of his family forever. In a very real way, King David, God's king, points us to King Jesus, God's forever king. Remember, that is what David's role as the king is supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be pointing people to God's true king. He does that in just the next few verses here. He acknowledges the Lord's role in his victory over the people in the north. It says this, These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations he had subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So at this point, we see wealth is flowing into David from virtually every direction. We're soon going to see it coming from the south as well. It's coming in from faraway kingdoms, and David, that means he ups his lifestyle, right? No, that's not what we see from David. David knew that it was the Lord who was giving him victory, verse 6 and verse 14. And so he dedicates all the wealth that he receives to the Lord. The parallel passage, again, in 1 Chronicles tells us where this wealth was used. It says this in verse 8, And from Tibhath and from Kun, cities of Hadad-Ezer, David took a large amount of bronze. With it... Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze. These are things that will later be used in the temple. So here's David's heart in 2 Samuel chapter 8. It's beautiful because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he desires to build a temple, a house for the Lord, and yet God says, not you, not yet. 
And David doesn't become discouraged. He just changes his focus. He says, okay, well, I'm not going to be the one to build the temple, but God didn't say that I couldn't prepare. And so he gets all of this wealth. He begins accumulating all this wealth. He's like, God, you didn't say I couldn't fund the temple. I couldn't provide all the materials for the temple. And so David sets his heart not to accumulate all of this wealth for himself, but instead to prepare for the building of the temple. And as he's conquering these kingdoms to the far north and to the south and to the east and to the west, he's dedicating it all to the Lord for the building of the temple. A generation later, Solomon, his son, is being charged by David with building the temple. And David says this, be strong and courageous Fear not, do not be dismayed. With great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it. Timber and stone, too, I have provided. To these you must add, arise and work, the Lord be with you. What a heart from David here. David knows that God has not blessed him for his own sake, but that the Lord has blessed him so that he can bring the Lord glory. And he sets his heart on doing just that. There's one final story here in this first section. We've seen the expansion of the kingdom to the west and to the east and to the north, and now we see in this final story the spread of the kingdom to the south with David warring against the Edomites. It says this in verse 13, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. According to uh, Psalm 60, Psalm 60 is actually about this chapter. It's about these events specifically here in verse 13 and 14. David is at war in the far north. Let's go ahead and show that map one more time. He's, he's fighting against the people of Aram in the far north. He might be uh, in this land of Hamath. And, and what happens is that in the south, the, the country or the, the, the kingdom of the Edomites, they attack during this time, while he's off in the far north, they're probably hoping to claim some of Israel's territory while Israel's territory is far off. But Abishai and Joab, these are David's nephews, they're the commanders of his army, they fight off the Moabites. And actually, they're so successful that just like David extended garrisons, planted garrisons throughout uh, the land of Aram, now he's doing the exact same thing in the land of Edom. David's control goes all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba in the Red Sea. And the text ends with a reminder of the source of all of David's victories. It says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. You know, on the surface, this text may be problematic, but at its heart, it is profoundly God-centered. It's all about God's commitment to his people and to his promises and to the spread of his name to the ends of the earth. You know, if the first half of this chapter focuses on this kingdom advance outside the borders of Israel, the second half, verses 15 through 18, tell us what this kingdom was like. Look at verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. 
Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, was the son, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites, and David's sons were priests. The final few verses here, verses 16 through 18, they're just court records. They're telling us what David's cabinet was like. Notice that there are five parts to this. Part one is about military. Part two is civic. Part three is religious. Part four is civic. And part five is military. So there's this pattern here. It's military and one and five. And then two and four is civic. And then in the middle is this religious focus in David's court. Here, even in a a court document, we see the heart of David's kingdom, a glimpse of the type of kingdom that David has established here. It's explicit in verse 15, what type of kingdom God has established through David. It says this again, David administered justice. This is a Hebrew word, mishpat, and equity, this Hebrew word, tzedakah, to all his people. Now, those two words, justice or mishpat and equity, tzedakah, oftentimes translated as righteousness, they're two crucial words in the Old Testament. They're meant to show the core commitment of God's people toward other people. This is horizontal. Mishpat, tzedakah, horizontal, how we are supposed to interact with one another. And David establishes a kingdom that is ruled by mishpat, justice, and tzedakah, righteousness or equity. All of God's people, or at least the majority of them, it rules. This is the type of of heart that governs all of their interactions with one another. Job tells us what this looks like when he's trying to defend his honor against his friends, saying, I haven't done anything wrong. This is what I'm like. He actually uses these two words to describe all of the things that he has done, the type of person he is. Notice this this powerful, powerful passage from Job 29. It says this, when the ear heard, this is Job talking, when the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it approved, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, or tzedakah, and it clothed me. My justice, or mishpat, was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. Justice and righteousness are consumed with a heart that steps into the gap for the vulnerable. It's a heart that goes out of its way for the widow. It's a heart that meets the needs of the poor. It's a heart that takes time to help those who seemingly don't have a place in society as a whole. People like the blind and the lame. It takes up the call to be a father to the needy, perhaps another reference to orphans. A life of mishpat and tzedakah is actively looking on how it can take on and take up the cause of others, even those they do not know. David's kingdom, unlike anything 
that has ever come before it. And unlike any kingdom that has ever come after it. Except for one. The justice and equity, the justice and righteousness of David's kingdom is the ethic of the kingdom of God. And it should be our charter as the church to be people who can say alongside Job, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Can you imagine dwelling among people like that? A place of justice and righteousness, a place where people are not consumed with their own interests, but they look out for the weak, they look out for the vulnerable, a place where people bear with the burdens and the cost of brokenness for the sake of others when they have more than enough to share. That is the kingdom of God. And we catch a taste of it in David's day, or at least what it should be. And Lord willing, we experience it in increasing measure in the church today. At the end of the day, this text is supremely God-centered. It looks to the past. It gives us a glimpse of the kingdom of God, and yet it points our hearts toward the coming kingdom of God, a kingdom that is already here and yet not fully here. If there's one message from this text that, that sinks into our hearts, I hope it's simply this. God will one day establish his perfect kingdom throughout or through his chosen king. God will one day establish his perfect kingdom through his chosen king. I've already mentioned that God is, God's already doing that now, today. Jesus, when he begins his earthly ministry, he steps onto the scene in Mark chapter 1. He says this, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel makes it clear the kingdom is here. God's perfect kingdom is breaking into this world through the work of his chosen king, through the Lord Jesus. Unlike David, with David, there's this golden age of Israel. It's there for a, for a generation, maybe two, and then it's lost. But with the Lord Jesus, there will never be a golden age because it will never fade. It will never go away. It will be eternal blessedness and joy. Lord willing, the people of God are increasingly a people of justice and righteousness, of equity. They're increasingly seeking the good of the vulnerable and the needy. They're increasingly meeting the needs of others rather than them, their, themselves. And yet, as we are all aware, this kingdom has not arrived in its fullness. We look around and we see that. And this too, that it has not yet fully arrived is a gift as well. You know, one thing that's very clear from this text is that there are only two responses to God's king and his kingdom. One is to reject God's king and his kingdom, and you will meet judgment. You will meet the judgment just like the Philistines and the Moabites and the Arameans and the Syrians and the Edomites. But there is another option 
to come to God's king with humility, to submit yourself to God's king, to ally yourself with God's king, to be like the people of Hamath. It will cost you much. Jesus makes that very clear. He's talking to his disciples and he says this, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The call of the gospel, the call of the king is a costly one. It's a, it's a call to give up the throne of your life to the true king. The Puritan Thomas Boston, writing hundreds of years ago, declared, self is Christ's greatest rival in the world. There is no middle ground when it comes to God's king. It will cost you the world. But it will also gain you everything. This is why the already not yet of God's kingdom is such a gift. It's a gift because the Lord is patient. He's gracious. And he's giving all people an opportunity to come to him just like Toy, king of Hamath, rather than like Hadag, Ezer. Time is drawing short, but the time has not yet run up. God will one day establish his perfect kingdom throughout, throughout the ends of the earth through his chosen king. And when that day comes, we ask ourselves, how will we respond to the victory of God's king? Will it be a day of judgment or a day of great rejoicing? Some of the final words of the Bible say this. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and that they might enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, but the one who desires to take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your kingdom that you will not be defeated that King Jesus you are victorious and we've seen that in part on the cross we've seen that in part in our own lives and we long for the day where you establish that victory in its fullness forever God, as we wait for that perfect kingdom, we ask that you would help us, strengthen us, enable us through your spirit to be a people of justice and righteousness for your glory and the good of our community. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.